Late last night I was alerted to the fact that um, someone on Twitter, a man by the name of the unappreciated pastor, had tweeted, Pastors, don't forget that you get an extra hour to preach tomorrow. And I was delighted to know that truth. So, glad we all uh, got that extra hour of sleep. I needed the extra hour because this message is so rich, it's so full. I needed all the time I could get. So, but I promise not to go that extra hour. Uh, In what ways am I hard to love? Oh, it was great to watch heads pop up there. (laughs) I'm looking at Kim, our admin, whom I work with day in and day out. I'm looking at my bride, Debbie. It's like, ask my bride, right? Ask Kim, right? They could give you a whole long list of ways that Tim is hard to love. In fact, if I was to roll it out here like a scroll, it would roll on the floor well past where Kim is sitting right now, right? But I'm not really asking that question. I'm not asking you about me. I'm asking us about us. I'm asking you about you. In what ways are you hard to love? It would be easier to start this message today by talking about uh, ways that other people in the church are hard to love, right? But no, I'm asking... In what ways are we hard to love? Let me remind you of what Jesus said about that topic in John chapter 13. He said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you are my followers. If you, what? Have love for one another. Absolutely. But unfortunately, the failure of Christians to agree on Central issues and other issues impairs our witness to the world. The world looks at the church today, particularly in America, and because we can't agree on things, the world just turns its back and goes the other way. Often, churches can't even work together in the simple proclamation of the gospel. I grew up in Southern California, and I remember as a young boy uh, hearing about Billy Graham come to, to speak in the L.A. Coliseum. And I also remember hearing members of the church where I attended, a very conservative, near, nearly fundamentalist Baptist church, uh, they would have nothing to do with that because he had certain other people on the stage with him. Now, he had them on the stage with him so that they could hear the truth of the gospel, right? But we would have nothing to do with them. We wouldn't participate in the pro- proclamation of the gospel because we couldn't get along together. What's more worrisome than that, though, is the way that Christians tend to divide over issues of peripheral importance. We take rigid stances on matters when Scripture itself has nothing to say about that, or is at least ambiguous when it does talk about certain things. Or how about even more worrisome is the failure of Christians to love one another, or even to create uh, an atmosphere, a climate, a culture where progress might be made toward the resolution of conflicts. We're not putting our heads in the sand here. There's going to be conflicts. There always are when you get a group of people together. Peter is writing to a group of exiles, Christians, that are exiled in uh, modern-day Turkey, uh, at that time Asia Minor. And they they had conflicts. They had issues. And he's challenging them to learn to love each other. But how about us? Let's talk about a a little more mundane stuff. How about the guy, the man, who sits on the opposite side of church from you? You rarely, if ever... Speak to him. You're not sure why. He's just different from you. Or how about the woman who sings loudly and off-key? 
the one who seems a little too emotional for your tastes, right? And her, her hands go up a, a, a little bit higher than what you're used to or comfortable with, right? Or what about those teenagers with the crazy hairstyle? Oh, to have hair for a crazy hairstyle. But who, those teenagers who, who will chuckle and roll their eyes at older, less hip folks like you and me. Do we love those people? Do we love them? I mean, deeply. From the heart. Well, as we're going to see this morning, Peter says, we've been set apart for that purpose. We have been born again for that reason. Now, mind you, this is hard to do. This isn't just easy, theological, biblical, Sunday-type fluff that we're talking about. No, this is hard to do, particularly if you've been maligned, if you've been hurt, if your reputation has been uh, smeared, if you've been unjustly treated, in the church no less, with little or no recourse to make things right. And I could go on and on. And every example I just gave there are examples that I myself have experienced. Well, rather than just continue to churn up the the challenge in front of us, let's see what God's Word has to say. Luke has already uh, read this for us. And also, as I was listening to the lyrics of the songs we sang this morning, many of the lyrics you'll see fit hand in glove with what Peter's saying here. So, there's going to be some text on the on the screen uh, behind me. If if we can get this to work, there we go. And I and I have uh, I have a person in the up back up there who's going to help me if it's not working right. But I'd also urge you to ha- take your Bible and have your Bible open, whether it's digital or paper. But have a Bible open in front of you to First Peter, chapter one. We're going to be looking at four verses this morning, verses 22 to 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now these are four verses that are, in a sense, lifted out of a a much, much... larger context, and so let me talk a little bit about context. Uh, Those of you that know me, have heard me teach before, you know that that's an important word. Context is everything in terms of understanding God's Word. So just briefly, uh, for the first 12 verses of this letter that Peter is writing to exiles, he's been writing about all that God has done for them. Then he proceeds, beginning in verse 13, by giving... Four uh, direct commands, four imperatives that issue forth from what he's been talking about in the first 12 verses. So I just want to show these to you very, very briefly, very quickly. In verse 13, we've already had a message on this. Peter says to set your hope fully on grace. And then in verse 15, 
he says, to be holy in all your conduct. And we've discussed about what that word to be holy means. Does it mean perfect? In fact, literally that term means to be set apart, to be placed over here for specific, unique, even peculiar purposes. To be set apart. That's what it means to be holy. To be set apart in all your conduct. And then today, in verse 22, the third imperative is to love one another earnestly. And then next week, in chapter 2, verse 2, there's a follow-up imperative that's based on today called long for pure spiritual milk. In fact, today's message is the first part of of two parts. I'm going to be preaching part two out in Wilsonville, so if you really want to track with me, you're going to have to come out there. Otherwise, whoever's preaching here, they certainly will will build on this as well. Because this section of Scripture today, of 22 through 25, actually... uh, extends into the first couple of verses of chapter 2. Now, mind you, you you see these commands here, these imperatives. This is Peter writing a letter. This is Peter who introduces himself in the first verse as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But we know him initially. He was Simon. He's nicknamed Peter or the rock by Jesus, who he later denies that he even knows Jesus. And then still later is forgiven fully by Jesus. And interestingly, Jesus uses the question, Peter, do you love me? And takes him through that process of forgiveness based on that question, do you love me? The narrative of this chapter, in a sense, it it swirls. There's a myriad of thoughts. Uh, Peter is not Paul. Peter's a fisherman. If you've been in the, uh, the Mark uh, class, the adult Bible class, which meets in the hallway out here in the classroom. Uh, we've been going through the gospel according to Mark. We know that Peter most likely washed out of rabbinical training, washed out of rabbinical school, didn't have what it t- took to get there like Paul did. And so his writings are different. Paul is, is a rabbi. Paul writes very logically, very deliberately, very uh, kind of in a form of an outline. Well, it's difficult. I, I struggled with this passage for this last week because I was trying to outline this passage, and it just doesn't really outline. But what I've discovered is, is it does flow. Peter's not writing a theological textbook here or a treatise. He's writing a letter to a group of people who are living in exile. And so there's, there's a flow, there's a progression, even in these commands. Can you see it? It starts with grace. Set your hope fully on grace. Not your own works, but on God's grace. And once you do that, then it leads to this being holy. It leads to this being set apart for the purposes of living our lives. It's based on God's grace, but it leads to holiness, which then in turn leads to today's topic, that is love. And not just love as a concept, but the the reality of loving one another. As a result of grace, as a result of holiness, we love. And we're, we're challenged, we're commanded to love one another. And then as a result, or actually issuing forth from that command... We, we see, and we'll see in just a minute, the means for that is this pure spiritual milk. The means for that is the Word of God, which we've been singing about. That's why I, I love that hymn. I, I didn't ask Taylor to choose that hymn. I mean, he just chose that hymn. And, but it fits perfectly with where we're headed this morning. What Peter is going to call for here in the passage today, this earnest, or your version might say, fervent love within the Christian community, that's actually the hallmark of conversion. 
you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you claim to have your life converted by God's grace, then love. That's what flows naturally out of that. Our love relationship with God is never an individual matter. We don't love in isolation. We love in community. The Christian life cannot be lived authentically in isolation. One of my former pastors, Ken Baugh, used to say, still says actually, Christ-like formation occurs best within the context of Christian community. It's evident that Peter's writing to Christians here, and it's evident because of the use of his term brotherly love. He's talking about the kind of men and women that are living together collectively as brothers and sisters because of this grace, because of this holiness. These are Christians. These are former Jews, former Gentiles who are now living in exile together in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. Well, here's what I would call the, the primary idea of this passage. For those of you that like to have a, a pri- kind of a primary thought to hang everything on, this, this is it. I'm going to leave it up here just for a, a few seconds so you can kind of get it. So the, the thrust, the primary thrust of this passage is love each other more than you think possible because you have been born anew by the living, enduring gospel. Love each other more than you think possible because you have been born anew by the living, enduring gospel. I want to unpack this a little bit for us this morning. That's, that's the closest I'm going to get to an outline, but let's, let's see if we can unpack some of the parts of that. So the, there's a, a, a primary driving thought here in this passage, and the driving thought, we've already referenced it, is to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, what's fascinating about Peter's writing here is that that's the command. That's the primary focus. Love one another fervently, earnestly. But then he's going to bracket that with a couple of words or a couple of terms. Now, if you're an English teacher here this morning or maybe you're an English major in college and you want to aspire to teaching English, he's using participles. Those I-N-G words like living, loving, That's what he's using here. And if you're a student of Greek grammar, let's take it a step further. These are perfect participles. (laughs) What does that mean? Well, that simply means that Peter's describing a completed action in the past, but that's still producing results that are still in effect today. That's what a perfect participle does in Peter's uh, language, the language of first century Greek. So these, the, the two terms that we're going we're gonna to look at here. One is in verse 22. The other one is at the beginning of verse 23. I need to go back, uh, back one here. There we go. Thank you. Verse 22, having purified your souls. And then verse 23, since you have been born again. That's how we translate those two perfect participles. Describing completed action still have results in effect today. These two terms give both the, the, the motives, of the reasons, and the grounds for the command to love. But they also reveal capacities or abilities to actually follow through with the command to love. Peter isn't just spouting out uh, commands to us here. He's trying to help us understand how to do that, how that works. 
And so having purified, which we'll look at in detail, and having been born again, those, those two things bracket this, this command, this imperative, and they show us both reasons for doing so and also capacities or abilities for doing so. So let's look at the first one in detail in verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. The term purified... When you see that, when you read that, when you hear that, what do you think of? Typically, we think of, of cleansing. To purify something is to cleanse something. It is a temple term. It's a term used within the, the worship of Israel. But it's more than that. It's more than just uh, cleansing. It also speaks of consecration. It speaks of being set apart for specific purposes. What the Apostle Paul calls sanctification, what the Old Testament refers to as holiness. It's being consecrated or set apart. So this perfect participle here indicates that the people are in a state of consecration. They have been set apart. Why? How? By their obedience to the truth. The text says by their obedience to the truth, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, at first blush, when you first glance at that, it, it, it may look like, oh my gosh, he's talking there about, that's something I do to myself. That's, that, that sounds like works-based religion. Not at all. Not at all. This is not salvation by works. Rather, Peter's emphasis is that we are in a state of having been set apart by our previous obedience to the truth. It's God who does the purification, who does the consecrating, who does the setting apart. And because of that, that's a compelling reason to follow through with the command. That's a compelling reason to love. Just to to make a connection in your mind, let's look back at verse 2. Four weeks ago, um, I I stood in this pulpit and we looked at the first couple of verses of of this letter, 1 Peter 1 and 2, and we we dealt in detail with, with this verse. So I'm just going to kind of give you a quick review here. So verse 2 reads, According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. What pops off the screen right away? Well, the Trinity. You see all three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, actively engaged in in this whole thing that Peter's going to be talking about here. This idea of foreknowledge, I don't want to re, uh, re-preach that message, but let me uh, refresh your memory. To the foreknown that's referenced there in verse 2, the foreknown are those upon whom God has bestowed His covenantal favor, His affection, His steadfast love. Those are the foreknown. That's what the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge of God is always within the context of covenant love. That's how it's always presented in the Old Testament. Secondly, notice that it's the Holy Spirit who is the means of our sanctification, who is the means of being consecrated or set apart or purified for special purposes, for holiness no less. And finally, it's all of this is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. We're dedicated to God by sprinkling with the blood of Jesus. And then we're bound to Him to express that by what? By obeying His commands. Love one another. 
I relished the fact a month ago that at the end of that message on the first two verses of First Peter, we celebrated this. We celebrated communion. And we get to do it again this morning. And, and it's a perfect climax to, to the truth of God's Word that we're exploring here this morning. And if you didn't notice that when you walked in, then please notice that. We're going to celebrate the, the Lord's table. We're going to celebrate communion together as an expression of our love for Him, but also our love for each other. That's why we're going to do it uh, together. Now, I want you to notice also uh, what this purification of our souls is for. So let's go back to, to verse uh, 22. We've been, our souls have been purified. Why? For, for the purpose of a sincere brotherly love. Obedience to the gospel is not merely intellectual assent to sound doctrine. Now, that's involved. But it must result in a transformation of how we treat each other. Do you get that? Let me repeat that. Obedience to the truth of the gospel is not merely intellectual assent to doctrine, but must result in a transformation of how we treat each other. He uses a term here, sincere brotherly love, um, which uh, I use that graphic to make the point clear here. He's talking about a brotherly love in the body or in the church of Jesus Christ that is without hypocrisy. The use of the mask is, that's a, that's a theater term, a Greek theater term. Those who would be involved in the plays in Greek theater is they would wear masks. They, and and when, when they would take those masks off, they would become no longer uh, who they, who they uh, presumed to be. We get our word hypocrite from that or hypocrisy from that. The wearing of a mask was hypocrisy. And so, basically, what Peter here is saying is that we're to love each other sincerely without the mask, without hypocrisy, genuine, no pretense. Think about, it may have already happened to you this morning, think about, you come to church, you see, maybe you see a buddy, or maybe you see someone that you know casually, or maybe you see a total stranger, and what's the typical greeting? Hey, good morning, how are you? How are you doing? And we respond with, if I say, hey, Josh, how are you doing? Typically, he's going to say, hey, great, how are you doing? Right? I mean, we kind of shrug and we kind of go our way. Hmm. Eric Eastev, one of our pastors, was sitting in the last hour, and I, looked, I happened to look at Eric, and I, I said, I can't do that with Eric. <laughs> if he asks me, how are you doing, Tim? I better tell him how I'm really doing, because he'll just read right through that. If I, if I just kind of blow it off and say, hey, everything, everything's cool, it's good, he'll go, really? You know? Um, what, what Peter's saying here is that the kind of love we have for each other within the church should be mask-free love. Take off our masks when we come to church and, and let the real you show through. Now, I'm not suggesting, Peter's not suggesting that we, you know, wear our dirty laundry out, out for everybody to see. We don't drag that out. But on the other hand, he's saying that too often our own selfishness, our patterns of deceit, our own hypocrisy, even flattery, we frequently will hide that under the cloak of brotherly love. And so he's modifying that and saying, no, I want you to have sincere, unhypocritical, mask-free brotherly love. 
Well, let's look at the second uh, main term that, is, that brackets the command. The second main term comes in verse 23. It's actually a single word in the Greek. We translate it with, what, six words there. Since you have been born again. This, too, connects back uh, to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The command to love is rooted in God's prior saving work. This isn't just something Peter is urging us to do, cajoling us to do. No, it's rooted in God's saving work. Peter's argument is that they should love one another because they have been begotten of God. Well, there's another real key descriptor that's used back in verse 22, and I absolutely love this word, and I want to see if we can give a little more detail to this, a little more flavor to this. Peter says the command, love one another, and he says to do it earnestly, or your, as I said, your Bible might read fervently. Now, this can both refer to intensity of action or duration, or a combination of both. And I think it's, that's exactly what Peter's after. It comes from a, 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 a root word that meant to stretch out or to stretch forth. It literally would denote a, a stretching, a straining. It would denote strenuous effort. It's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when He's praying and He's laying before the Father, His desires, Lord, take this cup from me if you will, but uh, what I really want is Your will. But He's straining. He's he's, uh, stretching out before. He's praying earnestly, fervently. In fact, to the degree that it even had physiological consequences. Right? He sweat drops of blood as a result of this straining effort. That's the kind of Uh, descriptor that Peter is using for this command to love one another. It's love that's, that's heartfelt. It's lasting. It's stable. It's strong. It's within the context of Peter's argument. It suggests sustained perseverance, extending even to the brother or the sister who may appear less worthy of my love. Wow. I mean, Peter is speaking strong truth, harsh truth, and right at it. And although he's talking to people in the first century, here in the 21st century, that still resonates with us today. This is, to borrow uh, part of, of, of the kind of the primary idea, this is what it means to love each other more than you think possible. I mean, because we, we hear that. I'm listening to my own message right now. I hear this, and it's like, wow, I don't know if I can do that. Well, fortunately, uh, because we can't, fortunately, we have a means. So in verse 23, we have a, a means for this kind of love um, to be possible. And the means is at the bottom of that verse, through the living and abiding Word of God. The new birth generates life, uh, Peter says, from imperishable seed. And that imperishable or indestructible or 
incorruptible seed is the Word of God, which we have already sung about this morning. And notice he contrasts it here implicitly with ordinary life. Ordinary life is generated by normal human procreation. And that kind of human life is fragile, it's temporary, and sometimes it's downright vile. And the, 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 the imperishable seed of the Word of God is the exact opposite of that. In fact, Peter is emphasizing the eternal quality of that. He, he starts with, with God, God's character. God is living, God is enduring, God is eternal, and therefore His Word is living, enduring, and eternal. And so when we hear that Word of God, and we respond to that Word of God in faith, with faith, by faith, it then, like a seed, it then takes root. That's what I prayed for this morning, is that that seed of the Word of God would take root in our lives, new birth would take place, and transformation would result. The fruit of God's at work in us would transform how we treat each other. So this this command to love one another, I'm not just up here haranguing and reflecting Peter just just blasting people with this command. No, he, he's, he's showing us how this happens, how this, in fact, can occur. And then it gets even sweeter. Uh, in verses 24 and 25, Peter quotes an Old Testament prophet. He actually validates his point. So often we might be in the Old Testament and then we go to the New Testament to kind of validate the, the reality of that point. Well, Peter's going the opposite way. He validates the point he's making here about the the uh, living, enduring, eternal Word of God by quoting a portion from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. He's quoting um, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verses 6 through 8 in this passage. I'd urge you to invest some time, even this afternoon, It wouldn't take more than several minutes to just read through Isaiah chapter 40, and you'll come across these three verses. But it's within a much broader, larger context. Isaiah is is writing in advance. He's looking ahead, as a prophet would do, to a time when his nation, the nation of Israel, would live in exile under the Babylonian superpower. He knows that they're going to be discouraged. They're going to be confused. They're going to be uncertain about God's promises of His covenant steadfast love. And so Isaiah 40, written in advance, Isaiah 40 is full of comfort. It's full of hope. It promises deliverance. And all of that is based on the Word of God. Based on the living, enduring, eternal Word of God. And so the main point of that Old Testament quotation now emerges. The Word of the Lord endures Forever, Isaiah, the prophet, is supporting Peter's argument in that the Word of God is living and enduring, unlike the grass of the field, unlike the flowers of the field, which are beautiful and then quickly fade away. Peter then equates the Word of God as understood by Isaiah, and he equates it with the Word that has been preached to this audience, these first century Christians living in exile in Asia Minor. Namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ. John says in his gospel, verse 5, John says, he's quoting Jesus, actually, Jesus, you search the scriptures 
because you think that in them you have eternal life. Well, absolutely. And, and that would be good news. That would be this good news that we would want preached to us. But Jesus goes on to say, And it is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I was thinking about this this morning, even as we were singing the lyrics to, to uh, one of the earlier hymns, is this enduring, eternal Word of God that Peter is referencing and that he's hearkening back to in Isaiah, that Word of God became flesh, right? That's what we're going to celebrate this morning. He came and He lived among us just like us, yet without sin. And then He died for us. That Word became flesh. This is a beautiful uh, connection here. The, he's gonna, Peter's going to go on in the next chapter to further uh, give details as to what this looks like on a day-to-day basis. But for now, for today, it's enough to just pause and relish this fact that God wants us to love each other in ways that go far beyond our imagination, that, in ways that stretch and strain the very resources that we're born with. And we're able to do that because God's Word is true. God's Word is enduring. God's Word is eternal. In fact, this Word is the good news, is the Gospel that was preached to you. Earlier this summer, in early August, uh, we were visited by our youngest daughter and her husband and their two kids. And they were with us for a week. We had just a wonderful time. We didn't go anywhere. We just stayed at our house showed them the Pacific Northwest. The weather was great. Uh, we had breakfast every day, pretty much every meal, but I, I specifically remember breakfast every day because it was just so warm and nice out on our back deck. And one of those mornings, I had this vivid memory. I, was, I have a little video clip of this, actually, and I was going to show it, but I thought, no, I better not do that. It's on my phone, though. If you want to see me afterwards, I'll be happy to share it with you. But this, this little video of our two-year-old grandson, Hudson, uh, Hudson and I have a uh, have a, a unique, very special little relationship. I'm not sure why, but I, th- this this picture of Hudson sitting between his dad and his mom. He's across the table from me, and uh, somebody had brought out uh, the children's storybook Bible, and so he has that Bible open. And he's two years old, and he, he's flipping pages, right? And he's reading through the children's storybook Bible, and what he's saying as he's reading is this: every page. He'd look at it and he'd kind of pour over and in every page he'd go, God loves me so much. God loves me so much, Mommy. So much. <sighs> you ever play that hand-stretched wide game with your kids, your grandkids? If you haven't, I'd encourage you to. You start off here and say, how much do I love you? Do I love you this much? Well, in Hudson's case, he'd say, no, Poppy, no, Poppy, you love me more than that. Oh, how about this much? Do I love you this much, Hudson? No, Poppy, no, Poppy, you love me more. How how about this much? That's the kind of love that Peter's after. This kind of uh, compelling, straining, more than we can imagine love. That's what we're called to. That's what Peter is saying here in this passage. In just a minute, we're going to sing... Sing a hymn, How Deep the Father's Love. I, I did specifically request that because I love the lyrics to the first, first two lines. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast 
beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Peter's not just challenging us to have that kind of love, but he's, we've, we're also given this, this beautiful model of that kind of love in the precious, enduring, eternal word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clear, moving reminder that our focus is on you, Lord Jesus, the living word. May our, may our minds focus sharply, our hearts focus sharply on you, Lord Jesus, the living, eternal, abiding word of God. We thank you that we're not just challenged to love one another, but we're shown how, given the means, given the wherewithal to do that very thing. And now we thank you for the opportunity to to celebrate the reality of your love for us, Jesus. You who chose to leave your heavenly throne and come and take on human flesh in order to live among us, live just like us, and then die for us. And so thank you for this privilege, this opportunity to celebrate that, and in doing so to remember you, your great sacrifice for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Again, we're... We're eager to delight in worship in you this morning as we observe communion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.